0: Uh, when I look at the reports that are in uh, my health, uh, I rarely understand, you know, what's going on. Sometimes I'll make a few notes and I'll bring them back to the doctor in my next visit and uh, he'll explain it to me. And, and I found that uh, if I look at it too much, I, I might get a little scared mm-hmm. of, of, you know, a little bit of knowledge sometimes isn't good. And, um, you know, so it's actually you, nothing, all, nothing to be worried about.
1: So if you had a choice of not receiving it at all, or receiving it but not understanding it what would you choose receiving it and
0: not understanding it because it is there and like i said i if i'm really confused about something or really concerned I, i'll just bring it to the doctor in the next visit or or send him an email
1: So, do you feel like you've done good for society through the work that you've done with Vanderbilt here
2: yes but it's not all been good i think in the balance we've we've moved the ball forward and we've substantially Not just at Vanderbilt, but across the country, because this law is a national law. I think we have fundamentally changed a significant aspect of how we deliver care. But any change that big causes discomfort and has potential safety implications that we're just now starting to understand and we will have to make changes you know refine what we've done to make it better and better as we move forward
1: hello and welcome to informatics in the round a podcast designed to help everyone become a part of the dialogue about topics in biomedical informatics I'm Kevin Johnson, Physician and Informatics Chair at Vanderbilt, at KBJVanderbilt on Twitter, on the web at www.kevinbjohnsonmd.net, and in all sorts of other places if you care to look. Our third episode of this year covers an extremely important, timely, and relevant topic. Every so often, the federal government passes landmark legislation. This is one of those examples. We're going to see what's happening at Vanderbilt which is a microcosm of what's happening in the entire country as a result of the 21st Century Cures Act and the specific actions it's requiring to stop information blocking. Huh? Information what? Yeah, we'll get into what that means. We have Dr. Trent Rosenblum, an expert in biomedical informatics and especially technologies that are used by patients to manage their health information. Trent's been at the forefront of this issue, really for years, and has way more than one podcast to share with us. We might well have him back in a few months to discuss how this is going in more detail. Trent is joined by Sarah Bland, one of the very insightful and quick-witted people I have the pleasure of working with on this podcast from time to time. Thanks, Sarah, as always. Although the masks she was wearing on our Zoom recording were kind of next-level weird, you'll see those pics on our podcast based website for Informatics in the Round, on our Facebook site, on Twitter, on Instagram, and if I get the nerve, maybe on TikTok. So, one thing I love about Nashville, Music City as it's often called, is that you can find a fantastic singer or songwriter almost everywhere you look. This episode is no exception. Will Comstock, one of the amazing, affable, and always professional administrative staff in our department, is also secretly a wonderful musician and songwriter, and was nice enough to bless this show with his voice and his creativity. He also, by the way, shared an important piece of personal insight from which part of this opening clip was snipped. I'm kind of excited for you to hear this, so let's get to it. Hope you enjoy it.
3: What did uh, one casket say to the other? Anybody have a guess? I don't. Is that you, coffin? <laughs> <laughs> oh, 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 oh. I actually get a lot of my jokes now from the comments section on <laughs> Facebook. Oh yeah,
1: that's true. <laughs> well, okay, why don't we get started? So I'm really excited about this group today. And I think that I think the listeners are going to really get a lot out of this conversation, both because of the facts and the science behind it, as well as the impact of that on real people. So this is going to be a great conversation. So everybody knows me. I'm Kevin. Uh, I try to keep the cats herded.
3: My name is Sarah Bland. I am a senior project manager in biomedical informatics, uh, working on projects related to um, genetic information going into the EHR.
2: Hey, I'm Trent Rosenblum. I'm an internist and a pediatrician at Vanderbilt, and I direct My Health at Vanderbilt, which is our patient portal.
1: What's a patient portal?
2: That's a great question. A patient portal is a website or an app you can use to log in and interact both with your health system and with your health information like recent tests you've had done um, or now, notes your provider writes uh, after they see you.
1: Which is a little hint, a little foreshadowing about the topic today. So we're really, really excited about having a new songwriter in our mist, a new songwriter who's also an experienced songwriter in our mist, and that's Will Comstock. So Will, thanks for joining us today. Glad to be here. So, yeah. So Will is actually one of the administrative staff in the department who has been. We were really excited to get him in the department, but we had no idea the depth of his skill set. It was only a few weeks ago that I actually heard about his his um, experience as a songwriter. So Will, I have to ask you. Just tell us your journey because every time we have a new songwriter, we like to know how did you get to the the pre-songwriter Will to the songwriter Will. It all begins with the Beatles. You're kidding. Uh, I- not
0: really. I mean, that's what the biggest influence on me. I, I realized that they, when I was a little kid, realized they wrote their own songs and I wanted to, I emulated them, wanted to imitate them. And so I just, you know, started writing silly little songs when I was a, a preteen and a teen. And then uh, in high schools, uh, songs that were maybe a little bit more memorable. So what was the first hook? What was the first hook you ever wrote? All I can remember is something like, and this isn't really a hook, but Alice and Monica. Uh, two girls that were in my class.
1: <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's good. And so what happened after, so you, had the, you started doing some songwriting with the Beatles, or using Influenced by the Beatles, and how, what's the most proud moment you have from being a songwriter? I think when
0: you fi- you're working on a song that you're really kind of happy about, and you, and you get it just right. That, that's when I'm always my proudest. Yeah. It's, it's working on that song and seeing it come to fruition. And at that point, you don't know what's going to happen with it. In my case, hardly anything happens anyway. But, you know, it, it could be a big hit. Uh, it could be well-received or it could be like eh, so-so. But it's uh, maybe that part of that not knowing the expectation.
1: Well, that's I mean, that's fantastic. The thing I always am impressed by with people in the arts in any form is the vulnerability aspect, like the idea that you really are putting yourself out there to be judged, whether you like it or not, not just by people who might know you, but people who've never heard about you and want to take what you have created as art and move it into either environments where you're not comfortable. So it's risky. And I can imagine that 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 moment of of feeling like, "Okay, I've done the best I can do has got to feel really kind of cathartic in a way.
0: It does, yeah, yeah. and you're right, it is vulnerable because uh, sometimes you write about your, yourself. You always try to you know, touch some aspects of your own life to make it more real when you're writing a song, even if it may not specifically be about you, but there are songs that are really maybe more biographical than others, and yeah. then you, you're really vulnerable.
1: So, so thanks, so the other part of your story, uh, which I think is so germane to what I know Trent's gonna wanna bring up is that you've recently had some some health challenges and have had um, an all-too-intimate experience related to Vanderbilt Medical Center and other hospitals. Can you say a little bit about that?
0: I uh, had a uh, tumor on my esophagus. It was stage three. Uh, And those kind of tumors happen when you've had uh, acid reflux for decades. And that was me. After they diagnosed it, we came up with a plan. Uh, I went through uh, radiation and chemotherapy. And, uh, and that was always a part of the plan to have three quarters of the esophagus taken out. And that was, uh, one of the reasons is it's the only way to know if the cancer was all gone and they would send that to pathology. And then they take the uh, upper part of the stomach and they stretch it and uh, reattach it to that little quarter part of the esophagus. And um, I'm fine, you know, I, I have to sleep on an angle I don't have a uh, gastroesophical valve anymore. That's what lets the acid and the bile down and not back up again. So I can never lay flat down uh, for any period of time or all that acid and bile comes back up and could get into my lungs. I could die. But um, I'm happy to be here. Uh, My experience at Vanderbilt uh, was great. I really
1: have no complaints. So the next time somebody tells you to take a first class ticket someplace, you could say, no, 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 no. I don't lie flat. I don't need those kind of beds. <laughs> well, we're, we're incredibly glad to have you. Um, you know, the thing, that, the thing that has driven today's topic has been some recent legislation that has solved the, what we thought was a problem. Some people think it's created a problem. And I thought Trent could talk about it some. And, and I'm going to lead it off, Trent, if I could, by asking Sarah and Will, have either of you ever received information from the healthcare system that you didn't understand and how did you learn how to interpret it?
3: Um, Yeah, I think uh, for me, my, so I used to work in pathology and um, predominantly anatomic pathology. So you go in, get a biopsy, um, doctor looks at the slide and it goes back out in in a form of report to the provider. um, And then the provider should explain that report to the patient so that the patient understands all the bigger medical terms and everything. Um, I um, have seen instances where sometimes that provider does not do the best opportunity at providing an understanding of that language. Um, so being on the, on the healthcare side, um, hearing from patients saying, well, my doctor didn't explain this report to me. Uh, what does this mean? Um, Who should I go to, to talk to, to them about this? Because I don't, Mm. I don't understand this report. Um, I've seen that a lot. And, um, you know, I think it happens when um, one, we expect patients to know more than they might. Um, And two, um, we're eager to get reports back or as patients really fast. And then we get them and we get a little overwhelmed Um, because you start to see words that just seem like they're um you know not that scary to begin with but then they're coupled with things like benign or or precancerous things like that and um then you're like wait a second i need to i need someone to explain this whole thing to me
1: yeah will did that happen to you at all uh when i look at the reports that are
0: in uh, my health uh I rarely understand, you know, what's going on. Sometimes I'll make a few notes and I'll bring them back to the doctor in my next visit and uh, he'll explain it to me. And, and I found that uh, if I look at it too much, I, I might get a little scared, mm-hmm. of, of you know, a little bit of knowledge sometimes isn't good. And,
1: um,
0: you know, so it's actually you, nothing, oh, nothing to be worried about.
1: So if you had a choice of not receiving it at all or receiving it, but not understanding it, what would you choose?
0: Receiving it and not understanding it because it is there. And like I said, I if I'm really confused about something or really concerned, I'll just bring it to the doctor in the next visit or or
1: send him an email. So Trent, what do you think of this?
2: I think this is great. So I, I mentioned that we have a patient portal and now really all health systems have patient portals. And What I heard is you'd love to have the information. You don't always understand it, but you'd love to have it. The research has shown fairly clearly that patients who are empowered with their health information do a much better job partnering with their providers and taking care of themselves. They do a much better job self-managing their disease and they do a really good job uh, working with whoever the caregivers they have in their life are, again, to, to manage their disease. Um, you don't have to understand everything and there are resources available to help you understand it. It might be a provider, it might be a friend or a caregiver. It might be Dr. Google, uh, which actually has access to a lot of great resources. Not everything on Google is great, but there's a lot that you can access just by hopping online. And then most health systems like ours also offer well-curated educational materials. But this all starts... Not with a Beatles song, but it all starts with having access to that health information uh, about you, uh, your own health data.
1: Hey, Trent, curated sounds like a like somebody just took something out and made me feel better. What does curated mean?
2: <laughs> curated is um, a process where people actually think about, I talked about educational materials, people think about the educational materials, the information that helps you understand your lab tests and make sure that what you have access to is as good as it can be. It's accurate. It's up to date. Um, It's something that you can understand. It's not written in, you know, as if it were a medical textbook for a a PhD holding uh, physician. Right. Um, but, But rather something that, is really accessible and understandable by anybody who wants to understand their own disease process. That's
1: super helpful. Yeah. So, so, so now we're in a world where there's information that's flowing all over the place. We have Dr. Google, as you said,
2: and by the way, I like Dr. Google. Okay. Um, he or she is a lot better than the doctor you can't access.
1: Definitely true. Reach that. And there's a lot of those right now. We could get okay. into that too. So what did the federal government do recognizing that this was the current state of information flowing and ownership to help us with this?
2: Well, I wanna tell you what the federal government did, but I wanna give you a little more background if I'm- Okay, okay. So the background is that while we know that patients being able to access their own health information or to share their own health information with their caregivers or the apps on their phone most health systems did not make all that information accessible to patients. So there's a practice that is called information blocking. what information blocking is, is not letting you have access to all of your results or all of your notes or letting you have access to it, but you gotta wait a couple of weeks before we're gonna let you see that report.
1: So wait, don't these doctors get into trouble? I, I would think,
2: you know, you know, obviously I'm
1: a doctor. Everybody knows this. I always felt pretty strongly that patients needed to get access to information. My job in getting a lab test was to give them the information back the moment I had the information. Are you saying that there's like a big high level of variance in
2: this? I am saying there's a high level of variance. If you go back 20, 30, 40 years, um, our health culture was very different. And In general, doctors who are chief providers back then did not really share all the granular, all the detailed data with their patients. They really served in a much more paternalistic relationship where they said, this is what's wrong with you and this is what you should do. We now understand that partnership and access to information is better, but it's highly variable across the country um, at least prior to this new federal uh, law. And why don't people get in trouble? Well, the reason they don't get in trouble is because until recently, there's been no, um, no trouble they would get in. There are no laws prohibiting this information blocking. And doctors and health systems simply did what they thought was best for their patients, including us.
3: The wheels are churning. And uh, I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. Um, and I, you know, I think a lot about my example prior where, you know, someone has a mask, gets it removed, and all of a sudden they get a report in their EHR, or sorry, their, their portal that says, you know, stage three cancer, but they haven't heard that from their doctor yet. So that can be part, you know, part of the problem here that it comes too fast, um, but on the other side, it's what Trent's talking about from the past where we had a system where doctors didn't really share information and withheld some things and just said, trust me, um, trust me, I'm telling you what you need to do because this is what you have. And I think we've seen some of that uh that same issue over and over, especially in the pandemic, when we've seen mistrust with our healthcare um, providers on how to deal with COVID and vaccines and things of that sort. So um, I wonder if this is sort of a reaction to that saying, okay, um, if we can't get our society to trust doctors, here's all of your information, and we're happy to help you with it. Um, You know, what prompted this, this Cures Act to begin with.
2: So, we didn't actually mention really the Cures Act. So, let me say what that is. The Federal Cures Act is the new law that does a number of things, but relevant to this conversation uh, is a new federal law that prohibits information blocking. It makes it so that all electronic health information, and it's got the law's got a list of what it, it considers health information must be made available to patients or their designees the moment they ask for it. There can be no delays and there can be no blocks unless certain rare exceptions exist. And we can talk about those exceptions. So if Sarah wanted to go look at her pathology report, if Will wanted to go look at his esophagectomy operative report, he should be able to access that immediately and... Um, without having to negotiate with anyone. He should just be able to log into the patient portal and see it. Now, he could also choose not to. He may not have any interest in seeing that esophagectomy operative report. But if he wanted to see it, if he wanted that information to help him uh, in any way manage or think about his disease, then he should have access to it. So the law... Uh, requires that that happen, that information blocking be uh, turned off. And in terms of getting in trouble, the question Kevin asked, it actually um, allows for the federal government to audit information blocking, if it still happens, and potentially impose fines. We don't know what those fines are, but we anticipate that they will be substantial, such as a million dollars per instance of information blocking yeah wow. if, if a health system blocks sarah's blood counts and blood salt numbers that's two instances that's two million dollars right there wow
3: i'm going to mention that to the primary care doctor in north carolina that won't give me my tetanus shot result what <laughs> I've trying, so i've been trying to get um I got a tetanus shot back in 2015 from a primary care physician that I saw once in a blue moon. And my doctor here at Vanderbilt wants to have that so that they can put it in my EHR and remind themselves, you know, in five years, hey, you need your tetanus shot again. I've called that practice in North Carolina four times and said, can you send that result to my doctor? Here's the information. And they keep saying, no, you need to show up or we need to talk directly to that doctor. They want me to show up in North Carolina to get that result. So I'm going to let them know that that's a million dollar fine now if they aren't going to give me my result. So,
2: so Sarah, a couple of things. First of all, I'm terribly sorry that the health system has treated you that way. Those are your health data. You should have full right of access to them. The fact that arbitrary information blocks such as you've got to drive there and show up in person or in place, get in the way of your ability to stay healthy. So your options are to hop in a car and drive to North Carolina, which is totally infeasible or get a tetanus shot prematurely so that, you know, you know, you're covered. Right. It's in the records here. Uh, neither of which is palatable, and the block that's in place prior to the Cures Act going alive last month, April 2011, uh, is not a block that is mandated by any law that exists. It is their institutional policy that has no support by law or regulation that I'm aware, Um, and as I said, it gets in the way of patient care. The reason blocks like that happen is there's a lot of misunderstanding out there about the really old law now called HIPAA, Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. Um, HIPAA, one p 2 A's is a law that is intended to uh, protect the security of patients' data, but more importantly, it's supposed to protect the patient's right of access to their own health data. And most health systems focused on the security and not the accessibility. And so you see these silly arbitrary rules that are neither the letter nor spirit of HIPAA, the law, that make it impossible for patients to access their data because it's so secure.
1: Will. I'm seeing you shake your head and, and obviously you have an opinion about this. What are you thinking?
0: Well, I agree that uh, any tests that are done, any procedure, we need to have that information. And Trent's right. It, it, accepts, it, uh, it affects our health down the line if, if uh, you know, our, provi- our current providers don't have that information.
2: Has anybody ever died from this trend? Has anybody ever said there are lots and lots of anecdotes, uh, stories out there of things that have happened? Two things have to happen. One is the provider who has that health data has to have missed something, right. And then the patient not being able to access that health information, then can't catch what the provider missed. Um, we have lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of stories of busy providers missing something and then the patient logging into the portal and catching it and asking a question. Really? Yeah, the, the most uh, the one that, that resonates the most with me is one that um, the fellow, the doc at Vanderbilt, who really got our patient portal rolling 15 years plus, ago tells is a patient who had a ct scan and the doc focused on the reason for getting the ct scan something wrong with the patient's chest and the ct scan of the chest was normal and called the patient and said good news your ct scan is normal Uh, your chest is fine and the patient says that's great but what are we going to do about that thyroid cancer that showed up on the CT scan Wow. and the doc had wow. totally overlooked that because the, the doc who's a really good doctor was focused on the reason for ordering the test, which was in the chest, not the thyroid cancer, which was in the neck that happened to have been caught on the CT scan.
1: And the way that usually happens, I guess, is that it's the radiology report that the patient can read. The doctor skims it and he or she looks for what they were looking for and doesn't necessarily see the other findings from the, from the CT. Is that correct?
3: that that
2: is uh very often what happens yes wow oh,
3: so yeah. i have a question trent um are people so th- i hear this i hear all this and i think this is exciting because for someone like me who likes to have a lot of information i now have and i love my health at vanderbilt use it all the time um it's great uh couldn't couldn't got two find a better product out year. there
1: <laughs> trent um, is salivating with excitement right now
3: <laughs> <laughs> i um I think it's a great tool. Um, however, um, I know of my colleagues who work at Mehari Medical and Nashville General who were on a research project together and were actually utilizing the patient portal to help recruit for research projects. And when we went into um, their IT department to ask them how much uh, or how high is their usage of their patient portal, it's pretty low. And there's a lot of accessibility issues um, for that reason. You know, you have uh, one, underserved populations who might not always have internet access, um, things like that. Um, Are are places required to have a patient portal at this point so that there is that accessibility? Um, And is this something that helps, you know, make um, access a little bit more equitable for underserved populations um, and minorities and people of color? Um, people who are um, dealing with poverty, things like that?
2: So that's a, a great series of questions, and there's a lot there. The short answer is that at Vanderbilt, we enjoy some of the highest patient portal adoption in the world. And that means that what we do at Vanderbilt does not necessarily tell us what other health systems can do. Part of the reason why we have such high adoption is because we've been doing it for 15 years, We've, or more, we've uh, really made it an integral part of how we deliver care at Vanderbilt as part of the fabric of our culture and our policy and our workflows and um, even how we recruit patients to Vanderbilt. And we're very, very proud of that. Not every health system has made those decisions. Um, there are regulations in place that encourage, don't require Would encourage the adoption and use of patient portals by health systems. But if they're put in as a regulatory afterthought and not really fully embraced, then adoption, both by the providers and the patients, is not going to be as high. The second point, I mentioned two things, that there's lots and lots more, is the question of whether patient portals are equally adopted across different populations of patients. And we know that they are not, and it is an unfortunate contributor towards some of our gaps in how we deliver care to diverse populations. And so it is both a challenge and a real opportunity for us to do better. In the past year at Vanderbilt, we've really focused hard on trying to reach out to some of the populations who we think would benefit from accessing our patient portal, but don't currently have high adoption. Those include our African-American population, our non-English speaking population, our children and adolescents. Um, And we've, we've really tried very hard to bridge that gap the reason why we've done it in the past year, the the trigger for us finally paying attention to this is COVID. With COVID we've stopped seeing as many patients in person and flipped to telehealth for a lot of the care we deliver. At Vanderbilt, our telehealth platform is built on our patient portal. So if you don't have a patient portal account, you can't have a telehealth encounter. You can but it's a lot harder. And so we've really, really, really tried to bridge that gap and put in place a number of initiatives and we think we've been very successful. We're still in the middle of the year so we haven't done a detailed analysis of it yet, but we believe that we've done a really good job in bridging uh, some of those gaps and reaching out successfully to some of those additional communities. But I think we still will have a lot of work to do even after the year is up.
0: Yeah, that's great that um, the uh, telehealth is tied to the uh, to the portal. I didn't realize that, but it makes sense.
3: This is a lot about the patient getting a lot of information and that's great. Um, however, one of the things that I see um, for my own healthcare is that if I don't have um, all the same doctors within the same system, they also don't always get a lot of the same information. And really, I become the, the quarterback or coach of my own health care um, and have to make sure that they receive everything. Um, you know, so if I let's say I, I need a nephrologist, but I could only see one at St. Thomas um, here in town because I couldn't get into Vanderbilt. Um, you know, I would have to make sure all the records get over there and, and go, you know, get over there and that they're talking to each other, things like that. Um, does the Cures Act help with that at all? Um, and being able to make sure that all the providers that you're touching um or dealing with get a lot of the same information, or is it still really in the patient's realm that they have to make sure everyone gets everything?
2: The the reality is I think both of those are true. So prior to Cures Act, there were already laws in place and regulations in place to encourage the sharing of health data from care provider to care provider. The Cures Act extends that and requires that health systems share your electronic health information to those you delegate, those you authorize to receive it. So if you say, I want this app to receive my health information, that information cannot be blocked. If I want my insurance company to receive my health information that the health system can't block your insurance. And likewise, if I want my health information to go to the dock down the road in a different health system, the health system where you receive your basic care can't block it. That does not mean that um, the receiving health system has to have an infrastructure uh, set up to receive it. So if you want the nephrologist down the street to receive your information from Vanderbilt and they don't have an electronic health record, then they're not going to be able to receive it very easily. But in theory, the the Cures Act does make that easier, does advance that. When I said it's both, what that means is there is still the situation that you may need to get it on your smartphone and show your smartphone to your doc over at St. Thomas so they can see your results in case their uh, health record system can't import the data from Vanderbilt.
3: So this is gonna make me channel uh, Brad Malin a little bit. And um, Brad was on a podcast um, a few sessions back and it was me, Ellen and Brad with Kevin. And um, we talked about privacy and security, Um, talking about apps, um, access and, and things like that. So, you know, I, I think it's great to get a lot of data and a lot of information, um, but it also makes me a little bit nervous um, because we also know that, you know, healthcare systems uh, do get attacked um, by secu- uh, cybersecurity issues. Um, there's ransomware out there. So, uh, is this become, um, an opportunity for, you know, people to steal my information a little bit easier. Um, You know, uh, are these reports and things that are going up on a portal going to become something that I need to worry that someone's going to be able to hack into and steal?
2: Our understanding of the law, and I take this from the attorneys who helped us interpret the law. Our understanding of the law is that Vanderbilt has no right to block access to your health information by an app that you have authorized, it's incumbent on you as the customer to decide to do research to make sure that that app is a valid app and isn't going to misuse your data. But if you authorize that app to access your Vanderbilt data, then Vanderbilt it has no right nor obligation under the law at this point to block or withhold your data.
1: Will, do you have any apps on your phone that um, share data? Of any type? No. You must. Probably. (laughs) Actually, your first answer is the right answer because you don't know. So do you think that if if let's just pretend that I can I create an app and it is going to be called my personal wellness ecosystem, and I give it to you for free. And as a part of that app, it starts out by saying, you know, this app will be even better at helping you with your personal wellness if you can connect me to your healthcare systems feed into your, um, in this case, portal. And it turns out that that uh, Apple does have a software development kit that theoretically could have done a connection between that app and the Vanderbilt app. So then this app gets all your information. Um, are you okay doing that kind of a thing if you think this app is valuable or are you skeptical of this app because you didn't write it yourself? How do you feel about that?
0: Well, I think my question is, so then what happens? Does the a caregiver in another system have the same app and I would give them access to the app? Because this is about sharing my yes. information.
1: So in this case, no. What would happen is um, you, would, you would get a notification, let's say in the morning and the app might say something like, Well, I haven't seen you record your dietary intake. And since you've had esophageal cancer, perhaps you'd like to help us to make sure that you're getting adequate calories or adequate vitamins in. So have you bought a vitamin? Have you subscribed to a multivitamin? Are you taking it every day? We'll be happy to remind you. It would be that kind of a thing. So the app could potentially do useful things for you. You may not completely know where else your data is going, but it's at least providing you with with free flow of information from your hospital system to supposedly help your health. So does that feel okay to you or does that make you nervous? I would have to
0: think about it. Um I don't know that there's anything in my records that really if if everybody knew it it wouldn't matter anyway. Yeah. I, I mean I I guess that's I'd have to be at that point, you know, to, to be able to get the app, I guess.
3: I think about that being a little bit risky on the mental health side. Uh You know i mean right yeah i you know i struggle with anxiety um hi my name is sarah i'm an anxious person and you know i don't know that i would want someone having access to all my mental health details um you know as far as like therapy appointments and notes um you know because they could they could read like oh she cries a lot during these sessions (laughs) um Not to mention I the don't fact know that it, I want everyone knowing that.
1: That's a lot of memory for a computer to have to use to store all that too. <laughs>
3: yeah, it's true. It's so yeah. sad. So
2: um, let there's... me just, let me just clarify. Remember you're authorizing which apps access your data.
3: Yeah. You know, but fa- I mean, Facebook and, and other apps like that, you know, you authorize it, but you don't know every little detail that goes out there. Um, you know, I, I'm authorizing Facebook to allow um, access to, the Apple health or something like that, or, or map my run. Um, but they're also probably, you know, noticing that I've gone to Starbucks and gotten a latte and and used my Apple card to, or Apple wallet to purchase that.
2: So what's um, really interesting is all of these regulations that exist cover health entities and data produced by health entities, like Vanderbilt. This sounds a
1: little this sounds a little Clinton-esque, like it means it depends on what the definition of is is.
2: No, no, no. This is I'm gonna be real clear here. They don't cover things that are not health entities. So Google or your phone tracks everywhere you go. Apple knows that you went to Starbucks either by following where your phone is or by looking at the fact you used Apple Pay to pay for that. And none of that is covered by these privacy rules that govern health data. Mat- my run, you mentioned, or Strava, is not covered by these laws. And they could and do share your data. They know when and where Sarah goes. They know how many times she gets lattes in a week. Um, none of that is covered. So the health data at least has a higher level of security around it. But the question you have to ask, and we have asked, and we've advocated that some of these things also be covered, is what it this is to Kevin's point, what is health data? Just because it's not generated by a health system like Vanderbilt or St. Thomas or another, that doesn't mean it's not health data. Your fitness data, your blood pressure data, I'm checking my blood pressure on this fancy little cuff I have here several times a day, um, that's health data. And it's not covered because it's not generated by Vanderbilt. It's generated by an app.
3: So what about these direct-to-consumer testing organizations? Same Um, thing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, 23andMe is always the one that people go to, but uh, I get ads daily for this Everly Well that uh, is, you know, get tested to see if uh, if you should be on the keto diet or get tested to see if your body really enjoys milk. Um, you know, are they health? I mean, that's health data to a degree. Um, and even if I don't agree, or I do agree with the science, um, are they, they covered with this? Are they giving me everything that, that I'm, I'm asking them to give? Are they having to deal with the 21st century Cures Act too?
2: So the 21st century Cures Act covers health systems, healthcare networks, and healthcare software vendors. Uh, I don't know that 23andMe is one that is considered a uh, healthcare software vendor, but it may be.
1: This is one of the biggest challenges with all of all this. And by the way, we're all trying to be really serious why Sarah is sitting here putting um, hats and mustaches on her face. So, oh, my gosh, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> it's terrible. Um you know i think honestly this is the this is all the, the this is the nuance right because if different organizations have these different names and the red, and the legislation calls out specific groups by these categories then it's possible right trent that patients won't really understand the difference
2: so yes that is right and that is part of why we've advocated that more broadly all of these producers of health data uh, be regulated. I, I'm, I'm not pushing for lots of regulation, but be regulated in a way that's consistent, so that people, consumers, patients, have the same expectations of their health data, no matter the, where they went. and And that's a really important point because before the Cures Act, a patient might go to Vanderbilt and have certain labs show up in their patient portal, and then go to a different health system, and see different labs show up in their patient portal because the different health systems decided to block things differently. They had different concerns about what might scare a patient or not. And then you go to yet another health system and they share everything, including all the notes. And that's very confusing for patients. It's very, very difficult for individuals as they bounce from health system to health system to receive different types of their own information and what the cures act does is says no, no no you just share everything but again that does not mean that you can access everything from something that's not a health system like right. matt Myron.
1: so will i got a question for you yeah, this will be a teeny bit serious but i feel like i should i want to have this conversation with you and let's just pretend they're not even here so rob was recently my husband was recently in the hospital and had um, a a GI bleed, and was in the ICU for about 16 days. And as a control freak doctor diagnostician, I was so excited that I was getting notifications about every single test that they were running on him in the ICU. So after about like three days, I noticed that sometime around six or so in the morning, I would get the morning lab results, and I would start immediately processing what's happening. So I'm at home trying to maybe go in at about nine or 10 to talk to the nurses after their nursing shift change. And I see his hematocrit, his, his red numbers, red cell volume numbers are dropping. And what used to be a hematocrit of about 45 had become a hematocrit sort of teetering around 21 to 25. And it would then drop every so often to 18. And then I would sit there and think, well, I hope they see this because, you know, his poor heart, I mean, he's not a young guy and I don't know that his heart can handle all of this. And then I would see his liver function tests go wildly high. And I would see his potassium go super, super low. And all of this was before I was even really awake. So it would be like 7.30 in the morning. So one morning I actually broke down and cried For a really long time, a friend of mine called and I just completely lost it. And I said, I don't think Rob's going to make it. And I'm seeing these, I'm seeing all these results. I I, I just, I feel like that they don't, they're not paying attention. And I need to be there to let people know something's wrong. And please help me figure it out. And so that we can keep Rob around for me, because I'd really like to have him around for a few more years. So, what advice would you give me? Um, I'm going crazy. I'm seeing all these results. What should I do? being
0: a physician, it would be really hard for you not to look at all those reports. I understand that. But um, I guess I would say you're just going to have to trust the doctors that he has. I mean, that's that's what I did. I, I didn't read you know everything that's in my health. I just had a, a trust in, in the doctors and, and faith that it was going to be okay. How could you not read it? I mean, if it was coming to you, how could you not look? I don't, every time I have a CAT scan, I don't look at it. I did it first. You know, I'm just getting to the point I, I was having them every you know, three months and then it'll be every, uh, six months coming up. But, um, at first I did, but I distrust. I have a trust and faith in my, uh, oncologist and in the, uh, technician that reads it. So now was, mm-hmm. that you were talking about that, uh, cancer that showed up on one of the CAT scans that one of the doctors missed. I'm thinking, oh boy, maybe I should read these over again.
1: But uh, no, it's probably, Well, I actually thought that might be your answer. I thought you might say what you said, which is have a little faith and trust in the system. It harkens back to, I don't know if you guys remember, daycare providers for a long time, you still put, cam- um, like for your kids, they would put cameras in the room and you could watch your children in daycare. And people would log in at work and they'd say, oh, look, there's Susie. She's climbing up the side of a wall. I hope somebody sees her because she might fall. And then their, your internet connection would drop. And they would call, you know, they'd call the daycare provider and they'd say, what, What's going on? I saw Susie on the, ca- on the camera. They're like, Yeah, we were there. We saw her too. We, we picked her up and we brought her down. And, you know, don't worry. So I guess, Trent, the, you know, what you're experiencing, I know, has got to be this polarizing response. From people like me saying, you're killing me here. Please don't make me the worst view of myself by having to see every single thing and react to it. You're seeing people like Will who are saying, I'm glad you're doing it. I'm not really going to change my behavior, but at least if I, I know there's probably somebody out there who wants it. And you're probably hearing deafening silence from a group of people who are health equity side who say, well, I don't even have access to my health at Vanderbilt to know what you're doing. So don't even tell me about it. So is that true and what are we doing about this? There's a lot of different voices.
2: Yeah, all, all the things. So I'm thinking, you're yeah, everyone is staring at me being thoughtful for a moment. Um, <laughs> so um, the, let me go back to the law, the, the Cures Act law. The Cures Act law requires that individuals who are interested in accessing their health information receive it upon going request. to look for it, mm-hmm. right? Upon request. It does not require health systems to push that information into the person's face. It does not require the health system to say, hey, your breast biopsy is back, go look at it. Rather, if the patient is interested in looking at her breast biopsy, she should be able to access it the moment that that biopsy is available if she wants to. And when she goes looking for it, she shouldn't have to wait for it. What Kevin described is these notifications, these little email or phone, ding, ding. There's a new result, ding, there's a new result. You don't have to look at it, but but it's there, ding. But how can you not? But how can you not? (laughs) What do you think people do when they receive a message that says, hey, your breast biopsy result is back, but you don't have to look at it. Yeah. They look at it they might have had stern resolve and said, I don't want to, I'm going to wait for the doc. And then they get that email that says, your breast biopsy is back. Your doc will call you once he, she, they have looked at it, but you don't have to look at it. Well, they all went and looked at it. And then they didn't understand something or there was something scary in it. Um, And so they started sending messages. You you can't see me fake typing messages um, to their provider. And unfortunately it's a Friday afternoon and, and oh my gosh. They may not get an answer back till Tuesday. Oh my God, that's worse. Which is why you can't see, but my head is shaved because yeah. of all the hair I would otherwise be pulling out. So what we did is as a result of this, we turned off the notifications for our patients. That's smart. The patient can always go and turn it on their notification. If there's someone like me, or if there's someone like Kevin who really wants to get these results the moment they're available... I can go in and turn those notifications back on. But most people didn't ask for these notifications. They don't want these notifications. If they're curious, they'll go look for their information. Um, but now we're not pushing. We're not saying, hey, yeah. your breast biopsy's back, but you don't have to look at it. And, I think
1: that's a brilliant move, Trent, because thank you. that and, solves and it, my morning anxiety issue.
2: And it's made everything easier for everyone. But again, there are people like me who really want to know the moment those results are available because otherwise I'm going to go in and just refresh my health at Vanderbilt every five minutes, maybe every two minutes uh, until those results show up. Now I don't have to do that. Now I can go take a walk with my uh, dogs and I'll get the ding when, when it comes, but other people, they don't want to know. So do you feel like you've done good for society through the work that you've done with Vanderbilt here? Yes, but it's not all been good. I think in the balance we've we've moved the ball forward and we've substantially, not just at Vanderbilt, but across the country, because this law is a national law. I think we have fundamentally changed a uh, significant aspect of how we deliver care. But any change that big causes discomfort and has potential safety implications that we're just now starting to understand and we'll have to make changes, you know, refine what we've done to make it better and better as we move forward. And I've spent a whole, a lot of us have spent a whole lot of time talking to providers and patients to understand what's not working or what's great about this so that we can make those adjustments.
1: Now, Sarah, you were telling me that you've been on a similar journey with the All of Us project, which essentially is that precision medicine project that we talked about with Josh Denny uh, really earlier in season one, essentially a giant database that allows all of us to put, hence the name, allows everyone to put their information in one kind of central repository that can then be used for researchers. One of the collateral benefits to patients is that as we discover things, we can recontact them. And share with me what you were saying you were kind of experiencing in that process.
3: So I think one of the things that we've struggled with is um, making sure that we're putting the right things into the medical report um, or into the medical record. Um, You know, some things are clinically actionable, meaning um, they are the ones that um, doctors can act on. Um, Then other things might not be informative um, and might just be the more you know. so trying to make sure we're putting the right things I think is really key because, you know, it's like a uh, doctor putting in notes, um, you know, putting in notes that are pertinent to the case, not just be like, well, I saw this person, they told me about their cat um, and we talked about the cat for about 15 minutes. That's not a note that needs to be in a medical record. So I think it's making sure that everything's going in that patients eventually see is, you um, has some utility for being in the record.
1: Well, how, so this sounds like both you and Trent have been on a bit of a journey, kind of understanding how to disclose information in a way that provides value without providing, you know, Kevin Johnson anxiety.
4: Yeah. And,
1: and I thank you both for that because that's really huge. Um, this journey, I, I know Will said he's got a song you wanted to play, and I really look forward to hearing it. And I think, Will, tell us a little bit about this song. I think we'll find that it's related.
0: Um. Is it really? I uh, wrote it about uh, 20 years ago uh, with my friend Carolyn Lee. Uh, she primarily wrote the, the lyrics and gave them to me. And she said that it was um, later, after I had uh, put some music to it, she said that it was kind of tongue-in-cheek. That's how she meant it to be. But I didn't really see it that way at all. And, um, you no. Know, Often we, uh, we think, oh, when this happens or when that happens, when the house is paid off or when I retire, then I can really be happy. Then I can really enjoy my life. And uh, that's kind of what this song's about.
1: Yeah. And I will just say, when I, I heard a little bit of this song already, I think this issue of kind of, it's, it is tongue in cheek, but the whole idea of sort of confronting reality. Right, and choosing how you confront reality is a part of the journey that we've talked about today because the reality is those tests do exist. The reality is people are anxious. Please play a a little bit. Sure.
4: Lately, all she thinks about is finding her true love. She longs to live her fantasy waiting for it's tough just like sleeping beauty she's waiting for a kiss to change her life forever for the better she thinks if after i meet mr right walk the aisle dressed in white men happy ever after We'll have a baby, maybe two. I'll quit my job till they're in school. If time would just fly faster till happy ever after. He's been working all his life, but never saved a lot. He's married with three children and the bills don't ever stop. Squeezing every picture so tight it almost squeaks. He's got no life but over time no wonder why he dreams after i get my next raise once the kids all graduate then happy ever after we'll buy that dream house on the lake and i'll go fishing every day yeah. Time would just fly faster till happy ever after. Put life on hold till when everything's a perfect ten. But I can't wait till then. I already have enough nothing more because now's happy ever after i got my health my family friends nothing else compares to when time flies with love and laughter that's happy ever after Living in the moments when I'm happy ever after.
1: You got to be kidding me. You got an amazing singing voice. Thanks. That's awesome. That was fantastic. Wow. That was a great song too. And And I love the fact whenever songs modulate, I'm like, okay, good. They went somewhere else with it. That was a really great song. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, does anybody else agree with me that that song is related to today's topic?
3: Oh like, yeah, totally. Yeah.
0: There you go. Know, yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. So you made me feel terrible, and then you come back. And go, oh, okay, yeah, okay, fine. It. <laughs> <laughs> Now that he's sung it and the nerves are over, he's like, all right, okay, fine. I can see how it relates. So I want to make sure I thank everybody for both, for all of you guys staying a little bit late. This was really excellent. Are there any final words anybody wants to make
2: sure they get out? We could talk about this for hours, but no, this was great. And I'm happy to come back and talk about it more, especially after we've lived with it for a while.
1: Yeah, really. Exactly. Good research opportunities here.
2: Yes, absolutely. Hey, if anyone listening is not doing research on this and wants to, we're we're doing it. We'd love to hear from you.
1: I will put that in. Sarah, I can't believe you have nothing else to say. Anything? Any final comment?
3: (laughs) How rude! (laughs) No, (laughs) I think that I I do think this is a really interesting topic. I mean, I've seen it uh, in now a couple of my projects that I'm on. One specific to family health history, which that's interesting because when you're adding in your family member's cancer in your medical record, you know, so that you can understand your own risk. I think that's an interesting topic to discuss on on how that applies to family members and that information being released.
0: I agree. There should be more research on this topic. And I would like to see some research along the lines of, um, you know, like you said, did anyone die because the medical records weren't shared with the current providers? And or w- was someone's health seriously compromised? I'd like to see some research done on that.
1: Well, I agree. I I think the message you know Trent just gave us is there's a really great opportunity for us to learn a lot from this. There's an opportunity for this to this release of information and make a, making available information to actually improve healthcare. There are there is a double-edged sword with any new technology, any new innovation, which this really is for a lot of sites. And then Sarah's point about health equity, which is you know, I'd hate to be the one who's at a party talking about all these great things Vanderbilt's done and then have somebody else at the party go, I can't get access because of, you know, you didn't put it on my device or my, e- I don't have email, so they wouldn't let me get into it. So I think we also have to work on making this, you know, equitable.
2: Yes, but I want to hear from those people so we can figure out how best to serve them.
1: We'll do that. And my final thing will be, oh, Sarah, wait, hold it, wait, I can't get out of the picture. <laughs> so which way do I go? This way. I'll do it this way.
3: <laughs> oh, that's good. I like that.
1: I might make my my, my new background for a few weeks.
3: I, I think that's going to go on my on my badge when I go back to work. <laughs> I'll send it
1: to you. <laughs> All right, everybody. Well, look, I look forward to seeing everybody in person. Well, that was really interesting ride, huh? So glad you could join us. Will sent me a professional recording of the song he played. And I have to share it with you all here to take us out of this episode. By the way, if you're new to IIR, don't forget, we have a lot of episodes from last year that I'll bet you'll enjoy. We actually referred to a couple of them in this episode because they're all kind of connected. So anyway, this is Kevin Johnson at KBJ Vanderbilt on Twitter signing off. Have a wonderful rest of your day. See ya. Hashtag science. I'm living it.
5: Lately, all she thinks about is finding her true love. She loves to live her fantasy, but waiting for its tough. Just like sleeping beauty, she's waiting for a kiss to change her life forever for the best. After I meet Mr. I walk the aisle dressed in white Then happy ever after We'll have a baby, maybe two I quit my job till they're in school If time would just fly faster been working all his life, but never saved a lie. He's married with three children, and the bills don't ever stop. Squeezing every paycheck, so tight it almost squeaks. He's got no life but overtime. I you. Perfect ten.